7.32. Concern might be a natural response to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak. But when does it go too far? When it becomes fear, chronic anxiety, xenophobia? The latter has been highlighted again by a high-profile case from the UK involving a 23-year-old man from Singapore of Chinese ethnicity studying in London who was apparently beaten up on racial grounds over coronavirus. And it's something that we've seen highlighted increasingly in the United States as well, as I briefly mentioned earlier in the show. In fact, Professor Gilbert Gee from the Department of Community Health Sciences at UCLA specialises in racism and health inequalities and joins us on the line for further discussion. Good morning to you from Seoul. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Do you feel that the public attitude overall towards this outbreak has been changing rapidly with the, the, the rise globally and all the media reporting? And are we seeing heightened hostility toward certain racial groups? Yeah, um, you know, it's hard to tell because a lot of it's based on anecdotal uh, reports. They're certainly important, uh, but it certainly feels like things are ramping up. I know that here in California, for example, and the United States more generally, there's certainly be, been a lot more concern and attention to COVID-19. And certainly we've been hearing a lot of people from the community talking about incidences of racial bias. How much of it is a natural response versus racism or, or xenophobia. I, I remember clearly, for example, being in Europe when SARS broke out, and perhaps a few other people remember this as well. And, and when you're told by the media repeatedly to be wary of travel to China or something along those lines, then it, you don't necessarily know where someone's been living their whole life. You might think they're a visitor, visitor from China. that you, you might not. Obviously, it doesn't justify a verbal or physical attack, but is some caution justified or what would be the appropriate way of handling that suspicion? Yeah, I mean, I think some concern is a, is a common response. I don't think discrimination is a justifiable response ever. Um, you know, if you do encounter somebody who has symptoms, you know, they're coughing and wheezing and they don't look very, you know, like their nose is all, you know, red and puffy, then I would certainly be, you know, cautious around them. But just because somebody looks a certain way or has a certain name isn't cause to assume that they're a vector for a disease necessarily. Which makes a lot of sense. But I, I do think coughing generally is something that could draw stigma no matter what you look like, especially speaking True. here in Seoul right now. Uh, would you say we're seeing, though, a greater level of xenophobia in this latest epidemic, pandemic, we want to call it? Um, yeah, you know, it's it's a little hard to tell because we don't really have good data on this. You know, we have a lot of people who are reporting, and it's great that the news uh, outlets are reporting this. And certainly, you know, um, bodies like the World Health Organization and here in the United States, the CDC has been, you know, telling uh, community groups and people at large to not discriminate. So there's certainly been a lot more attention and certainly with a lot more people using the Internet now compared to, say, when SARS broke out. Um, we're hearing a lot more stories, whether this is maybe more reporting versus more actual cases is really unclear. But certainly there's been a lot of conversation and probably we can safely say there's more conversation about this. Right. So in a sense, we're more aware of that because of the massive expansion in social media over the, the years since the last 
huge epidemic pandemic concern but but of course yeah. also that in itself drives more xenophobia potentially so yeah understand we don't have the data to prove it but um people are getting a sense of it do you yeah do, do you have anything to say about how potential discrimination affects illness and the way people receive medical services oh yeah so d- discrimination can have a lot of different effects and let me just kind of name a few you know so first yes people who are sick and infected but they worry that they're going to experience discrimination and stigma they might never see care they might just go underground and hide and that in turn is a bad situation because those people may get sicker and possibly not get treated but also because they're hiding because they're worried that they might actually help facilitate the transmission of the disease it it also affects our knowledge of the disease because you know one thing that we all want to know is how deadly is it you know how does it compare to the common cold how's it you know influenza and you know in order to understand how deadly and how severe the disease is, we need to actually have an accurate headcount of how many people are getting sick. Because when we calculate those statistics, you basically do a headcount of how many people are infected versus how many people ultimately die. And that gives you what they call you know, case fatality ratio. Um, and so if some people are hiding because they're worried about discrimination, um, then we're not going to have an accurate headcount. And it just throws our understanding of the statistics way off. Um, In addition, discrimination itself can actually make people sick or even sicker. So there's a lot of research that shows that people who encounter discrimination um, get a stress response, and those stress responses can impair the immune system and cause dysregulation of bodily systems, and this in turn can, you know, cause new illnesses or make them even sicker. By the way, just as a kind of aside here, here in Seoul, sometimes when I'm being treated by doctors or having a consultation, I will hear things like this or that condition or is more or less likely in Caucasian people or, uh, you know, some reference to the fact that I'm different from most of the patients that they see. Uh, When it comes to infectious diseases or, or an outbreak like this, is there any grounds whatsoever for suggesting that different ethnic groups might be affected in different ways? Yeah, so I, I think a better way to think about it is really where people have geographic origins. You know, so it's, in my mind, less an issue of race and ethnicity per se, but more about where their ancestors grew up and sort of the kind, the gene pool that they um you know, for, you know, the gene pool that they have that may make them more or less susceptible to certain illnesses. And of course, what we know now is that it's not just the environment and it's not just genes, but it's really how genes interact with the environment. Um, yeah, um, I mean, the reason I so asked that as well, just to elaborate a little further, is when we have a, a relatively low mortality rate here in Korea, and that might be different ages of patients. I know the Shinchanji sect has relatively young people going there and and so that could be a factor but when you see a much higher mortality rate in iran and and italy you know there is a question there in in the back of the mind which is well what's different there if it's not the virus itself that's different is it is it the population that's different yeah it's it's really hard to tell right now everything is still very early 
because it could be, for example, it could be other things like nutrition and poverty, um, you know, people whose immune systems are already weakened. We know that, for example, you know, people who are older, uh, much older, you know, senior citizens and children and people who have other pre-existing conditions are generally more likely to, you know, die of even the, you know, influenza and, and more common uh, ailments like that. I think right now it's still pretty early in the in our knowledge of the disease, so it's really kind of hard to tell, like, all the different risk factors that will make some people more susceptible. But certainly the more general things that we know about, like, vulnerability due to age and pre-existing illnesses and, again, malnutrition and things like that definitely can play a role. Yeah, and, and I might add couple of other stories of discrimination anecdotally um, here in Korea. We are still seeing signs, somewhat bizarrely, telling foreigners to stay out of certain premises, which um, is surprising, seeing as Korea is one of the uh, the hotspots for COVID-19 at the moment. But but also, if you happen to be a member of Shincheonji, this religious sect, uh, th- that might make life a bit harder as well. You might be discriminated against if you are known to be a member of that sect. How do we kind of ensure the medical sector is free from these kinds of issues and, and is immune in itself to to falling prey, given that nurses, doctors and, and everyone else involved, they themselves are human beings like the rest of us? Right. So you're absolutely right. We do know that the prejudices that healthcare providers have are not not too different than the ones that people in the lay public have as well. You know, as you say, they're... They're all human beings. And what the research is showing is that especially when people are are stressed out because they're overworked, for example, or they're working very long hours, that they're more likely to kind of revert to sort of superficial knowledge or sort of information that they pick up, you know, kind of through their experiences and, and that may be colored by other biases. And that can in turn, you know, change how they treat patients. Um and, and it can contribute to potential bias by providers against patients. So I think what we can do is, you know, first of all, kind of remind ourselves that, you know, we are first and foremost, you know, worried about a disease. And certainly germs don't respect borders. Germs don't respect, you know, don't, even though people may be prejudicial, germs are not. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of remind that. It's important, I think, also from the people at the top, you know, people who are in administrative roles, people who are senior leaders in, in, within the medical profession, to continue to remind us that, you know, we need to treat patients equally. Um, that's also another important aspect of it. And, you know, buttressing policies uh, that protect patients from discrimination and also protecting doctors and nurses from discrimination from patients, because that can happen as well. You know, having this multi-layered way of trying to ensure that people are treated civilly and fairly, I think is going to be really important. Do you suspect that some of the government's actions around the world, for example, travel bans or heavy restrictions targeting South Korea right now, it's around 100 countries that uh, we could list, which we won't because we don't have much time. Um, do Do you suspect that that will affect the way people would treat Korean communities within their countries not necessarily reflecting the fact that they may have spent years in that country without having been to Korea. Yeah, it certainly can, although it should not, right? So the problem is that, 
you know, we're not necessarily rational people, um, you know, human beings. Um, and so even though it seems so on the one hand, you know, having travel restrictions can make a lot of sense, you know, in terms of slowing down the spread of the virus. Right. So, you know, we know that, you know, certainly having contact with other people will, you know, you know, make it likely more likely that you that the virus can be passed on. And so having some restrictions makes sense. At the same time, people shouldn't confuse those public health actions with a sign that it's okay to treat people differently and that it's a green light to discriminate against people. You know, we should still treat them as individuals. And if people are, you know, um, you know, just sitting around doing nothing, you know, it doesn't give justification to attack them or to say, you know, racial slurs or anything like that. Does it also become very important to be able to explain this outbreak? There's still this lingering doubt there whether you know that allows conspiracy theories to to spring up but also lots of uh, question marks about the the food menu in china and uh, what should perhaps not be on that food menu and again it's a conversation that maybe does need to happen in a in a very civil respectful way but it could easily spill over into xenophobia yeah that's absolutely right you know, and it's really important to remember that what is normal food to us is weird food to somebody else, you know. So, um, you know, like when I was in Australia, you know, it's not unusual to eat kangaroo, but here in America, we we don't normally eat kangaroo, and it might seem like an unusual food to us. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of misinformation um, in the social media about, you know, like, for example, there was that meme about, I think it was a... Chinese actress who was, you know, seen in a video of eating bats, but that was way many years ago before this whole outbreak occurred. So I think what we have a responsibility to make sure that what we're doing is focusing on facts and not making a situation worse um, and making assumptions that, you know, if people are eating a certain way and they're eating differently than us, that that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. And again, we all, all cultures have foods that other cultures would look look at as very unusual. So, right. So, I mean, the, the key point here, though, is that if someone said that um, I don't know, broccoli caused some terrible <laughs> virus. Uh, broccoli doesn't have an association with one particular country. It would be wise for us all to advise others around us to say, "Look, avoid broccoli." So we have to be able to say that without it sounding racist. Yeah, that's right. Um, thank you very much, Professor Key. Good to have you with us on the line today. A very important issue that we all need to check within ourselves, I imagine. It's a real pleasure. I'm really glad you're having a segment on this. Well, thank you again for taking the time. Professor Gilbert Key is from the Department of Community Health Sciences at UCLA. Get your local and world news right here on This Morning, 7 to 9, Monday through Friday. Seven forty-eight, straight into our sport with Jason Kiefer. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, Alex. And I mean, every time we start sport, I'm just wondering what's the latest disruption as a result of this outbreak. And uh, AFC Champions League, Korean teams have been struggling to hit their stride with all the changes in schedule. Apparently, 
Yeah, you know, no no news today on like any any uh cancellations or, or further postponements, but yeah, the you know, the Korean teams uh competing in the AFC Champions League from the K-League one. Uh, it's been a bumpy ride so far. FC Seoul, Ulsan Hyundai FC, Suwon uh, Samsung Blue Wings, and Chumbuk Hyundai Motors, they've combined for just one win after six matches. So it's apparent that they have not been able to get into any sort of rhythm so far in this tournament. Uh, Suwon made a longer-than-normal trip to Malaysia to face Johor, uh, Darul Tazim, and lost 2-1 to one this week, Tuesday in Group G. Then on Wednesday, Jumbo Kyunde went down a man in the second half against Sydney FC in Australia, but managed a last-gasp last equalizer to pull out a 2-2 draw in Group H. Suwon have lost their first two matches, while Jumbo have a draw and a loss in their first two contests. Ulsan have played once in Group F and have a 1-1 draw against FC Tokyo on February 11th, and FC Seoul's 1-0 win over Melbourne Victory in Group E on February 18th remains the only win from a K-League team so far in the uh, in the series. No one is making excuses, but the moving of matches and rerouting of teams as they travel to away matches could be partly to blame, and of course that does come back to the coronavirus experience that we're all having. Suwon had to travel an extra 10 hours to their match in Johor because they couldn't connect through Singapore, which has a travel ban on all passengers from Korea. Additionally, Suwon hadn't played a match in two weeks because of the indefinite delay to the start of the K-League season. So they arrived rusty, they arrived late, and, uh, and it showed on the pitch. Jumbo Kyunde were in a similar situation when they drew with Sydney FC earlier this week. The team is the three-time defending K-League champions. You'd think that they would be on top of this, but they haven't played a match in three weeks. They looked lucky to get the draw. Uh, the next matches are scheduled for early April, so we'll have to see how it goes then. Spring training baseball. And baseball has been massively hit here at home, uh, and, and they've been delaying a lot of and disrupting a lot of the preparations for the season. But over in North America, some action from Kim Kwang Hyun and also that man, Ru Hyun Jin, who's made his move to the Blue Jays. So I guess we'll all have to be focusing on them. Yeah, I think so. Without any Korean baseball to, to you know, uh, whet our appetites, we'll have to we'll have to watch MLB uh, as they get started. It's good to talk about sports that are actually happening and not getting canceled and rerouted. Uh, Kim Gwang Hyun took the mound early this morning, about 3 a.m. Korean time, to face the New York Mets. He's making a strong case for one of the starting spots in the St. Louis Cardinals rotation. Uh, Kim struck out two and pitched around three singles to keep the New York Mets off the board in his third appearance for this new club. Uh, he's 18 of his 25 pitches for strikes. And so far this preseason, he has pieced together five shutout innings in one start and two relief appearances. He's got seven strikeouts and only one walk, and he's only allowed three hits. So despite this being a relief appearance, the Cardinals organization continues to say that Kim is considered as a starting candidate Based on his incredible endurance, he pitched over 190 innings in the KBO last season. The club is well aware of that, and they want him to, to earn his way into one of those starting spots. If he keeps pitching shutout innings this spring, he'll get closer to locking up one of those uh, uh, one of those starting roles for his new club there. Um, as for Yu Hyun Jin, he looked good, but in a simulated game that he pitched this week against minor leaguers uh, within his new Blue Jays organization. Uh, he threw 32 out of 50 pitches for strikes. Pitched two, uh, sorry, three and two thirds innings. He only gave up one run on three hits and a walk, striking out seven. That's the key there. He struck out seven. He was looking sharp. Um, he made a spring training debut last Thursday against the Minnesota Twins. A little bit of a rocky one there. Three hits, including a home run in two innings. Uh, but he pitched 41 pitches in the game, 15 more in the bullpen afterwards. His next spring training appearance will come next week on Monday, and barring injury, he will be the Blue Jays' opening day starter against the Boston Red Sox on March 26th. Also, some bright news from the NBA. 
as one of the brightest stars is set to return to the court. Yeah, this is really great news for anyone who's a fan of the NBA. Golden State Warriors guard Steph Curry will return to the hard court actually just a few hours from now, about 12.30 p.m. Korean time against the Toronto Raptors after missing more than four months while recovering from a broken left hand. Uh, Curry suffered the injury on October 30th when Phoenix Suns center Aaron Baines fell on his hand. Uh, they had a collision under the basket. Curry since then has undergone two surgeries to repair the fracture. The first was on November 1st in Los Angeles. They put pins in his hand to just get all the bones in place. And then the second one was in December when they removed those pins. The Warriors, it is, it is obvious that they have missed Curry desperately. They enter Thursday's game league-worst 14-48 and 48 record. Aside from Curry, their other all-star swingman, Clay Thompson, has been ruled out for the rest of the season as he continues to recover from a torn ACL. Fans might remember he suffered that in Game 6 of the 2019 NBA Finals. Veterans Draymond Green and Kevon Looney have dealt with injuries themselves, so this has been a really tough road for the Golden State Warriors, going from uh, NBA champions just a you know a season and a half ago now um, struggling at the bottom of the uh, at the bottom of the league. But um, getting Steph Curry back will definitely help them. Thank you for the details, uh, and Jason Kiefer, have a good weekend. Hope you get to enjoy what sport is left and undisrupted you too Alex